Hi there. It's your host, Lisa Kiefhofer here. Before we start today's show, I want to tell you about a really powerful experience I had recently. This fall, I took part in a four-week intensive series called White People Working for Racial Justice, offered by the Justice Leaders Collaborative. It was hugely transformative and continues to reverberate in my mind and in my actions. We explored our history of racism and resistance in the U.S., unpacked our whiteness, white supremacy, and white privilege. We learned and practiced the skills of interrupting bias, and we explored allyship and accountability, understanding how we can carry our learning into our everyday lives. If you're a white person committed to learning about your part in upholding systems of oppression and the steps you need to take to help dismantle it, I absolutely and wholeheartedly recommend you sign up now for the next White People Working for Racial Justice series. You can learn more about the series and all that Justice Leaders Collaborative offers by visiting justiceleaderscollaborative.com. You can also find the link in the notes for today's show. Well, you know, about the time my mother died was when the HIV AIDS pandemic hit Zimbabwe. Well, it had been around, but it started spreading and we started noticing people that we know, friends, relatives, starting to become ill. And back then, in the early 90s, there was still a lot of stigma. And so we'd describe it as this person has a long illness and they're in hospital. We don't know if they'll make it. That was the code word we used. And so I remember after my mother died, that's when some of the, 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 the nonstop funerals started. Mm. We'd be constantly hearing about a friend of a friend or a relative, distant relative, um, just people we knew. And eventually it started affecting my extended family. And we started burying uncles, aunts, cousins and so it felt like from my individual grief from grieving my mother's loss it, it just straight went straight into this collective grief that mm-hmm. everyone was trying to make sense of and navigate and trying to figure out how to honor people that were dying of this illness that had so much stigma around it and shame and you couldn't talk about it but you still had to figure out how to honor these people You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. And through this show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. On today's show, I'm bringing you a very special and very personal conversation. I've invited you to listen in on a pretty typical conversation I have quite often with my longtime friend, Shona Teruza. In addition to being one of the most insightful and deeply compassionate human beings I know, she is a daughter without parents, losing her mother at 17, then her father at 30. She is an immigrant several times over, from Scotland to Zimbabwe to England to the U.S. She is a mother, an artist. She is a minister and a racial justice advocate. 
In addition to exploring the very intimate losses she's faced in her life, we explore grief in its most expansive definition to include the losses faced through experiences like immigration, global movements, and cultural upheavals. We explore the impact of compounding loss and the physical aspects of grief work, too. I'm certain by the end of the show today, you will see why the very minute she and I met more than 15 years ago, I knew instantly that I was in the presence of someone very, very special. So my name is Shona Taruza, and I work in ministry professionally. People often ask me, where is that accent from? So my ethnic origins are British Zimbabwean, and I guess the accent's a mixture of the British and Zimbabwean, as well as some American thrown in there as well for good measure. Good morning, Shona. Thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. This is an absolute, absolute pleasure. The pleasure is mine too. Thank you for having me. What you're going to hear today is a reflection of many of hours of conversations that Shona and I have had over the years of our friendship around family and love and grief and loss and race and systems. And I just wanted to invite you all into this conversation because I know I've learned a lot from our friendship, Shona, from our conversations, and I kind of wanted to just share it with the world. And so many other people have probably experienced a lot of the same things that we have. And so it's a, it's a good, great opportunity to invite everyone in and people may be able to recognize parts of their own story in this. Yes, that's always my goal with the show. And I think as we're coming into a new age with COVID-19 and with the national reckoning we are having around race in this country, I think now more than ever, people want to be exploring um, stories that ref- help inform, but also reflect the experiences that they're having. So I'm hopeful that today's conversation will be that. And I have a hunch, we don't know when this airs, I have a hunch after this airs, this will probably be part one of two or three um, in season two of Grief as a Sneaky Bitch, but we shall see. We shall see. That would be awesome. Wonderful. So Shona, I'm going to start with you where I start with all my guests, and that is asking you to reflect for a moment about your earliest memories of grief in your growing up life. And when you think about the event or that time period, sharing with us a little bit, how were the adults in your life modeling grief? What did their behaviors and words and actions or uh, lack of words. I, al- I always say grief is often modeled implicitly more than explicitly. So what did that look like growing up and, and how does that reflect how you see grief today? Well, I'd say my earliest memory of grief wasn't of um, an individual dying. It was of a major transition that my family made and it involved a lot of loss, but also with the beginning of a new chapter So I have to go back to my family history just to tell you a bit about it. My dad um, was born in Rhodesia, um, which was under an apartheid type system when he was a young teenager. And eventually war broke out in Rhodesia. And my dad decided to leave and emigrate to the UK and on a scholarship to study nursing in Scotland. And when he was there, he met and married my mother and they had me. And because they were a mixed race couple, and the mixed marriages were still illegal in Rhodesia at the time. They stayed in the UK, 
However, when the war eventually ended, and that was in 1980, and Rhodesia became newly independent Zimbabwe, my parents decided to emigrate back to newly independent Zimbabwe. And so this meant leaving all my mother's family. I was very close to my maternal grandmother, my nana, my auntie Carol, who I'm named after, and uncles and cousins and friends in London. And leaving that all behind, not knowing if we were ever going to see them again, and emigrating to Zimbabwe. And so when we arrived, the war had only just ended. So it's not like um, it was we were arriving in the promised land or anything. It was, it was pretty messy. And being a mixed-race family, after the two races have just basically ended a war, wasn't very easy for mm. my parents and, I guess, for us children as well, because we picked up on it. And so there was a real loss of my mother's side of the family, of the land that I'd been born in and raised in the UK, I had to say goodbye to that, and a loss of identity. And the, the grief was around letting that go and then trying to figure out who we are now in this new place and having to recreate ourselves and find our feet and find out you know, where we fit in. I know that it was very, very difficult for my mother. So how the adults modeled this, my mother struggled. And you can imagine, she was young. She had three children. She'd never been to Zimbabwe before, but she came with the man that she loved. There was the language barrier, unfortunately, in the beginning. And so I can remember understanding, even though I was only about seven years old, that this was very tough for my mother. And probably tough for my father as well, but I didn't see that as much. And so I remember the, the first year in particular being difficult as we adjusted and tried to find our feet. And I can remember the weight of the grief of, of those losses as my first experience of grief. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it, it's so beautiful that you are sharing today this recollection and memory of grief around a non-death related issue, because I think we often get hung up, at least in the US, that grief is relegated really only to death loss. And the story that you told about sort of immigration, about transition, even when our even when our choices for transition are ostensibly positive, you know, mm -hmm. we're going towards something, not running away from something. I think it's so beautifully important that you framed and named that as still a loss and to sort of honor all of the ways in which you were saying goodbye to people and places and senses of self um, and to just honor that. And I know that's a theme that has carried on in your life as you then eventually moved um, to the United States. So I know we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show, but I just really want to reflect back to you how much I appreciate that way of thinking about grief and talking about um, the ways in which we shed old identities and old places and spaces and to really honor and give space, create space for that grief. And I know we're going to talk about that too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you shared a little bit about your family. So you're one of three siblings. You, from a formative age, were living in Zimbabwe post-war Mm -hmm. um, biracial, part of a mixed-race family. Um, tell me a little bit about those formative years in terms of finding sense of self. So when we think of grief, we think of sort of re 
you know, letting go or saying or shifting our narrative to building a new story of our life. And certainly that's happening always in the formative years of our teens. But for you, you were doing that in the time of growing up in the context of a relatively volatile country and, and that sort of thing. Tell me a little bit about that time. Yeah. So like I mentioned, the first year, the first couple of years, I'd probably say were very difficult as we adjusted and each of us individually, as well as as a family, tried to find our feet. Um, we settled down. I remember the 80s being fairly peaceful, for my family at least. We moved into a three-bedroom house in the suburbs because initially we'd been in the townships soon after we arrived, the township that my father had been raised in with relatives because we didn't have anywhere else to stay. And then my parents found jobs and we moved to the suburbs and we lived a fairly... I'd say peaceful life. And I started to identify, identify more as Zimbabwean. I started to learn about the culture. We spent a lot of time with my um, paternal grandparents and mm. they lived in the village and that was a real immersion in the culture. And so I started to really embrace the, the Zimbabwean side of me and to feel a bit more like it was home in the 1980s. However, by the end of the 1980s, my mother had become ill. We noticed that she was coughing a lot. And when she was coughing, she'd cough up blood. Mm. And eventually we discovered that it was cancer. And so when that was discovered, they decided to operate and remove her left lung. And I don't know too much about the medical side of things. I was only a teenager. But I do not remember her going for chemo or radiation therapy or anything like that. Um, and I didn't know much about cancer at all to, to know that this is what you should be doing. And so, of course, eventually she died. And that was in 1991. So there's another major yeah. grief incident. And how old were you at that time? At just a teenager or late young, so I was, young by adult? The time, by the time she died, I was 17. Wow. Yeah. And, you know... And- and when what how did how was that handled in your family? I can't remember. Are you the youngest, the oldest? I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. So you had younger siblings who were experiencing this as well, and your dad now just lost yes. the love of his life. What what did what did grief look like in your household at that time? Extremely messy. Not that it's ever clean. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but everyone I remember everyone grieving in their own way. I remember my dad just not knowing what to do. My mother, it was a typical uh, household setup. My mother was the one that took care of us and uh, took care of the household, even though she worked full time. And so all of a sudden now my dad was a single father of these three teenage kids. And I I can remember him (laughs) struggling. I remember us struggling and rebelling and each in our own way trying to come to terms with the grief yeah. So the best way to describe that is just messy. Yeah. And honest. And probably everybody listening to the show is nodding their head in some form or fashion, right? Because it is it is messy. And and we don't tend to like messy. You know, we think we have expectations that things should be so neat. So, right. so, so there you are kind of getting ready to graduate high school, presumably. You're now watching your dad grieve his wife. You're grieving your mom. How did you start to navigate and make sense of that time and that shifting of your own identity? Well, you know, about the time my mother died was when 
the HIV AIDS pandemic hit Zimbabwe? Well, it had been around, but it started spreading and we started noticing people that we know, friends, relatives, starting to become ill. And back then, in the early 90s, there was still a lot of stigma. And so we'd describe it as this person has a long illness and they're in hospital. We don't know if they'll make it. That was the code word we used. And so I remember after my mother died, that's when some of the, 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 the nonstop funerals started. Mm. We'd be constantly hearing about a friend of a friend or a relative, distant relative, um, just people we knew. And eventually it started affecting my extended family. And we started burying uncles, aunts, cousins. And so it felt like from my individual grief, from grieving my mother's loss, it, it just straight went straight into this collective grief that mm-hmm. everyone was trying to make sense of and navigate and trying to figure out how to honor people that were dying of this illness that had so much stigma around it and shame and you couldn't talk about it, but you still had to figure out how to honor these people. And it just seemed to accelerate from there. Mm. And unfortunately, about the same time, the country started going through some serious troubles. And so I ended up leaving in the, by the late 1990s and moving back to the UK. And there's another major shift and loss of identity and right. saying goodbye to a, a former way of life and, and all of that. So your dad and your siblings were still in Zimbabwe and you picked up and moved to the UK. What was the impetus for that new life? Was that college? Was that just seeing what was happening in Zimbabwe? What, how did you make sense of that time to, to pick up and start over again? Well, actually, my sister left before me. She met, okay. we, 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 we saw the writing on the wall, and as soon as she finished high school, um, we sent her over uh, to the UK. I was at university at the time. Uh, I was doing my master's. Um, the impetus for me was I studied agricultural science at university, and the reason why the, the Zimbabweans went to war was because their land had been taken away by the, the colonial powers and they had been forced into reservations, which is our equivalent of reserve. In Zimbabwe, it was reserves and here it's the, the equivalent is reservations. So my grandparents, for instance, were in a reserve. And after independence, this land wasn't returned as mm. there was a lot of unhappiness because the war had been fought and won but um, average Zimbabwe's didn't, still didn't have their land. So the political situation started heating up and I was at the university. And as you know, universities are very often where political action starts. So I got caught up in protests, which turned into uh, the, the police and the armed forces tear gassing us. Pretty similar to what we're seeing happen in this yeah. country right now. Yeah. But I could see that... Um, the trajectory didn't look good, especially when um, the farm invasion started. Um, and eventually the whole economy collapsed. Um, what happened eventually, and this is after I left, is that the war veterans went in and started just forcibly um, taking their land back, going into white farms and reclaiming them. 
but unfortunately um, they didn't farm after that. Some of them did, but for the most part, um, farming was interrupted, which created food shortages, which created um, economic problems, yeah. poverty, all sorts of, of issues. And so my brother and I joined my sister in the UK and my father was left behind in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. And how was that transition for you leaving and knowing your d- dad was staying behind? What what made him stay, do you think? You know, initially um, he thought he could ride it out and we were able to, if he needed it, support him financially because, you know, the, the dollar had crashed and we were earning British pounds, which converted was a lot of money. And so, you know, when he needed assistance, we were able to help him out. Um, he did decide, event, he started talking eventually about moving over to the, to the UK, but unfortunately he became ill and then he died. Mm-hmm. And how old were you when you lost your father? So I was 30 years old okay. when he died. Yeah. So much loss by the age of 30. And how did you come to make meaning of his loss? And how did that, how was that different or the same over the loss of your mother? So I mentioned before that um, I work in ministry. Um, when my mother died, I was devastated. And we'd been a, a, a family that had been raised in the church and attended church. Um, and we'd prayed for my mother and people believed that she would get well. And when she didn't, unfortunately, that destroyed my faith or the faith that I had at the time, which mm-hmm. is a very childlike faith. But when my father died and... Once again, um, I had that major identity loss because now I'm no one's daughter. Um, yeah. Both my parents are gone and I'm in a different country. And, and who am I? And what does my life mean? And what do I do now? Um, I started asking all those, those really deep questions and doing all that soul searching. And somehow in the midst of all of that, um, I developed a, a faith. And it was, it was very different from the, the faith that I had as a teenager or a child and that became something that gave my life meaning and purpose and with that building faith I realized that I really needed to do something different to what I'd been doing before which was working in science I really needed to work with people to somehow help people who are going through the same sort of thing that I was going through help us, not help them, help all of us. Yeah, yeah. And so that set me on the path to ministry, which ended up with me going to seminary and then training as a chaplain. And so that's, that's taking me right into the grief. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Shona and I explore the toll compounding grief takes on our bodies and our minds. We also speculate on the long-term consequences these physical distancing restrictions will have on our ability to process our grief. Yeah, right. Then there you were smack dab again, bearing witness to others' grief. Um, this has been a thread that's come through for sure. You know, something you said, Shona, I wanted to reflect on. You were talking about the sort of 
cascading waves of people in your life sort of starting more in the periphery and then coming closer and closer to home who were dying and particularly dying of illnesses that had stigma. But that also meant there was sort of no space to to grieve, that sort of compounding grief. It was sort of at the at the edges of your life, but also in a very close personal space of your life. And it's got me thinking about what we're experiencing in the U.S., but really globally, um, different countries have experienced what with COVID-19, the sort of cascading waves of illness and grief, and then the inability to be able to sort of emotionally, physically, you know, show up for people. Do you see or feel some sense of similarity to that experience you were having at the time to what's oh, happening now? Yeah, absolutely. This the, the first half of 2020 has taken me right back to Zimbabwe in the 1990s. You know, I feel the same sort of feelings I felt back then, even though I don't actually know of anyone. Um, there's no one I know has died yet. People have, I've known of people who have, have become ill, but no one personally, but I can, it's that same sort of feeling that, there's this thing out there and it's coming closer and closer and knowing just how much people are suffering out there, just knowing that there's, um, what was the last count? How many lives? I mean, we're recording right now in July and I think we're at maybe 144,000 deaths in this country. Right. And imagine all those families that are grieving right now. Imagine all of those. We've got what, 4 million people who have tested positive. Imagine all those people and the fear that they've been living with, the fear that their families have been living with, not knowing if they're going to make it or if they're going to need ventilators, will the hospitals have a bed for them? Just it's, it's, it's all that same sort of fear and grief all mixed up and all condensed into a very short period of time. I mean, if 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 we spread this out, we might have been able to have more time to honor and acknowledge some of the people that we've been losing, but the death there's no space keeping, for there's it. There's no space. We just, it's, it's, we, we're moving so fast through this all. And I wonder how are we going to be able to process all of this as a society? I do think what you're talking about too, this compounding grief and this, this lack of space for grief, not just the, and we might talk about that later, not just the sort of inability to sort of have ritual and ceremony, of course, because of social distancing, but just the, there's no um, sort of psychological, social, emotional space to have distance and to make sense of it because this this particular grief of these losses the for the families and friends of the 144,000 have passed and and those who have fa- ill family members this is on top of the instability of our day-to-day lives our incomes for many people our right. you know sort of sense of ourselves then we're going to add in the layer of the sort of sort of collapse of the bubble of the you know the quote-unquote America that was a, it's been a myth, mm-hmm. which we can get into. So I think all of these layers of things that, that you know, I often talk about grief as the manus- being akin to the manuscript of your life being torn to shreds and you're trying to operate and rewrite the story of your life with no instructions. But I, I think literally, and that I often picture as just a few tears and rips and you're kind of putting it together. But this feels like someone took our sort of sense of ourselves and what we know about our world, our relationships and everything, and put it through the craziest office shredder you ever saw. Right. 
there's, there's so, so many of us um, who are completely disoriented and there's nothing, we, we don't have any script to go on. Every yeah. day there's something different. And so we, it feels like we're just floating in confusion right now, especially with no guidance or clear leadership exactly. or the conflicting messages we're getting. Exactly. And as you started our conversation today, grief is messy enough because of its very nature. And then when it's made more messy by conflicting messages or a lack of sort of support or moral leadership, I think it's compounding um, our sense of fear and confusion and loss, all of which, of course, are normative in sort of typical grief, but are sort of Mm -hmm. exacerbated, I think, in the context of, of what we're living in. Well, you know, me and you, Lisa, we, we, you know, we've, we've been in this, this grief work um, for a while. And as humans, we've, we've created rituals. We have um, a loss as a rite of passage. And as humans, we've different cultures have developed ways that we, that we acknowledge this rite of passage. For instance, here in the U.S., we would have funerals, uh, memorial services. Well, first of all, let's, let's rewind back. When we hear the news of someone having passed, we would normally go to the the ones that they've left behind, and the first instinct we the first thing we we do is we put our hands on them, we touch them on the shoulder, or we we hold their hand, we sit with them, we hug them, we all cry together um, as a way of acknowledging just the, the depth of this loss, even if it's not an individual that we've lost. If someone's lost a job, we do the same sort of thing. Now we can't do any of that. Um, we're having to um, deal with phone calls and Zoom when we know of someone who's, who's grieving. We've lost the, the, physical, um, the physical touch component which is, of grieving. Which is, I want to pause too there, if you don't mind, before we sort of mm-hmm. explore all the other ways in which ritual has come to a halt or been completely upended. We, we live our, grief is a very embodied reaction to loss. It's a very physical, physiological, embodied reaction. And so I think we can't underestimate this disruption in touch Mm -hmm. and physical proximity to the ways in which it's sort of disrupting our ability to begin moving through grief. This, This loss of touch is profound. I don't know that we're talking about that enough. I don't think we are. You know, I don't know if you remember the studies that were done on kids that were deprived of physical touch. And yes, eventually yeah. they, eventually, unfortunately, they, they, a lot of them died if they didn't have that human contact. And although um, the majority of us um, are, are adults, and it, it, may be, it may look differently, skin hunger is a real issue. Yeah. The loss of physical touch, especially during times of grief. Exactly, exactly. So especially in those times when our body then is sort of holding in, because I, to me, I think about the, the touch that happens when we're kind of in especially hard, sorrowful, sorrowful grief spaces, it, is, it creates a sort of energetic release. It's not that mm-hmm. the hug or the touch, you know, all of a sudden I'm not sad anymore, but it allows us to sort of pass through and release energy. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, and I, I'm, I'm feeling very much um, for myself. Even just, I just went through the loss of my dog, and and just the not even being able to have touch with people. Mm-hmm. I feel I feel grief more in my body these days than I have in past losses. And so, yeah, that that ability to um, 
not that inability right now, I think, for lack of gathering and lack of touches is profound. You know, I I remember um, when your husband, Eric, died. Yeah. The first thing I I, I just felt this urge to come over and I I didn't have anything to say. I just wanted to put my hands on you somehow. And so I remember coming over to your house and just sitting with you and just just being there. And I think that's something that um, really... we we bonded at that time and oh, absolutely strengthened our friendship and it's now that's what how many years later so it'll be nine years in August will be since he passed and I can remember that vividly Shona you coming over and being in my physical space and I will say I talk often about what does good grief support look like and people are always wanting the like I just want to do something and they're wanting the answer and the fix. And I will tell you to the T every single time, moments like that moment, Mm. that time when you came and just sat and sort of psychically, emotionally, and physically held me. Mm -hmm. You didn't didn't have any solutions. You didn't have anything to say to make it better because you can't make it better. But your physical presence that showed up without judgment and showed up just with love and understanding – is the single most transformative thing, I think, in these nine years of my grief journey over the death of my husband, are those moments, and that moment in particular, Shona. And it was deeply significant for me, too, because you know that I'll call, the the, the first, you're, you're one of the first people I'll call up when I'm in a crisis, because we were able to share that time. Yeah. And I just yeah. imagine all those people who don't have that, who can't can't do that right now, who want to do that, but can't. And what does that mean for the people who are grieving? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then not only that, do you remember then after that, we had the funeral and and all of our, your friends, everybody was able to crowd into that Universalist Unitarian Church and readings, uh, music. um, You know, we, we were able to all gather, all of us that knew Eric and to grieve him collectively in that space. And some people were crying, some weren't, but we were together. And I remember the energy of that space so vividly. And now we can no longer do that kind of thing to honor those who have been lost. Absolutely. You know, I still can recall the physicality of that day, not just the words that were spoken or the music, even though I I didn't get up and I chose not to get up and speak. but again, to your, t- to your point, I think we have those sense memories of those gatherings. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. A note about the numbers we just mentioned. Though our conversation was recorded this summer, this episode is airing in late November 2020. And the compounding grief is even more significant as the death toll in the U.S. surpassed 257,000 and the infection rates are soaring in 47 states with an estimated 12.4 million people having been infected. Physical distancing is still highly recommended and states are even returning to shutdown orders as we begin the holiday season. 
When we come back, Shona and I explore how and why we need to create space to honor our various experiences of grief and how our culture of gratitude can sometimes keep us from offering ourselves that much-needed space. Creating space for grief is so important, but it feels so hard sometimes, doesn't it? It's so easy, tempting, and even encouraged by others to just keep busy or focus on what you have to be grateful for. As if that is the simple solution to the very real, complex, and messy work of grief. Newsflash, it's not. Trust me, I've tried. See, the thing I've learned through my own personal grief work over the past nine years since my husband died, and through my work assisting others through their grief, is that if you don't make time for your grief work, it will make time for you. And trust me, that's not the kind of space you are hoping for. I offer one-on-one support, and I'd be honored to help you find meaningful and practical ways to incorporate space for your grief so that you can do the important, necessary, beautiful work of honoring your loss. You can learn more about one-on-one grief guide sessions with me by visiting reimagininggrief.com. you and I right now are talking about sort of gathering in physical space. But one of the things you and I talked about the other day, I love your, your insights on Shona is the way in which we do this thing of sort of um, not allowing space for grief. And I don't necessarily mean in the sort of physical gathering sense, but the sense that we do when we judge ourselves or don't honor our losses, because we have this way of saying, well, at least my fill in the blank. You know, at least it's not right. somebody else's. Can you talk a little bit about just your own reflections on how you maybe have operated that way in your life or what you're seeing kind of as you navigate in this in the space that you're doing, in the work that you're doing now? Well, you know, I've, I've found myself doing that a lot this year. Um, I, I'm very blessed. Um, and and, and, and this, is, this is how it starts. This is how, this is how it starts when you start to, when you get down the path of denying your own grief. I'm, I'm looking at my life right now. If I'm being honest, I'm, I feel anxious a lot because of everything that's going on in the world. I have kids that are school age and I don't know what the future of education looks like for them. There's so many things that are making me anxious um, as, as they're making everybody else anxious. There's been a lot of changes that have, have caused me grief. You know, there's so much that we've lost because of this pandemic, stuff that's going to be gone forever. But at the same time, I find myself saying, well, you know, at least I don't have it as bad as those people who um, uh, have been sick or have lost their jobs. Or, and I start discounting the grief that I'm feeling because I feel like I'm being ungrateful and I, I, I shouldn't be um, acknowledging my anxiety and my fear because there's so many other people who have it so much worse and then you find yourself stuffing all the anxiety down, trying to suppress it because how dare you feel these things when you've got a roof over your head and, and you're healthy. And so I, I can sense that it's not just me that's doing that. I, I, oh, I hear man. it in a, in a lot of different people when you ask them, how are you? And you generally want to know how they are. And they say, well, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. And you're like, wow, you know, I, I know for a fact that you know, you've had to change jobs and that must be really tough for you. Um, And I know that now 
or said, or for instance, you've become a, a homeschool mom all of a sudden, and meanwhile you wanted to be a career woman, and that's a big loss. But we can't acknowledge these small losses because there's so much other loss out there that is more worthy of right. people's attention. And that's that comparison, that kind of grief thief thing that we do to one another and to ourselves is really problematic, right? Because then mm-hmm. grief has to be expressed. And when we do that, then grief is not expressed. And so it goes somewhere. It goes somewhere. It's usually the body. I tell you, yeah. a- April, May, I had this physical pain in my chest, which made no sense whatsoever because I was in the middle of numbing and trying to keep calm and carry on. And the middle of my chest was was hurting and I knew mm-hmm. it wasn't illness or anything like that then one night I sat down and just just thought about it and I was like you know it's my heart aching not literally but you know it it felt like that was what it was it was just the heartache of all the changes that me and my family having to adjust to and seeing the world changing around me and not being able to make sense of it because it's changing so quickly every day And so how do you interrupt for yourself or for others those, you know, you use the word shouldn't, and I always talk about the shoulds and shouldn'ts um, that get in our way in our narratives, but especially in in the context of grief. How, knowing that not expressing our grief is, can cause us, you know, physical, emotional, psychological harm, how do you interrupt those shoulds? What, how do you... Um, make space for that, either for yourselves or the, the ones you love. I know you often, I can, I'll let you answer that, but I know you often hold me to account and say, <laughs> no, but really, because I always start off with like, well, I don't have things so bad and I'm grateful for this. And I've, I know you've caught me and said, you know, yeah, and it's okay to feel. Is that what you do for yourself? or Well, you that's what you do for me too. I mean, only just last week. <laughs> I remember you calling me out. Yes. But, but something else that, um, so people like me and you are very fortunate because we've, when you're in the, the caring professions, the importance of self-care is drilled into you. Yeah. And so I do know that every now and again, I'll have to put pause on, on the, the, the voice in my head telling me, all, all the stuff that we shouldn't be listening to and go off and do something very different. Yeah. Um, for me, a great outlet is journaling. And I have written volumes and volumes just in the first half of 2020 alone. Um, and I can rant and rave and complain about how unfair my life is to my journal and yeah. not feel like I'm burdening any other individual. And then once I've released it there, then I have more capacity to take in what's going on in the world if I don't attend to my own grief I don't have space to listen to anyone else and that that is the most that is so profound say that again (laughs) if I don't attend to my grief I don't have space to be able to support or attend to anyone else yeah and we're in that's the profession that we've chosen yeah so it's important it is really important. And I think, I don't think people take that seriously. So I think it, that what you just said and why I asked you to repeat it is so important because we're so taught um, to not be quote unquote selfish, to be grateful. And I do believe in gratitude. I have my own daily gratitude practice. So this isn't to bash gratitude, but I think we have this, we are caught up in this myth that if we even the words we would use it, self-indulge, right? Mm-hmm. And to our own sense of loss or pain that we're 
selfish and self-centered and that we're not going to be good for other people. But I do think what you said is absolutely true. And the truth is the very opposite, which is if we can't express and articulate and practice the kind of love and compassion and holding space for our own pain and our own grief and our own loss, then how on earth are we going to be able to do that for others? Because we don't know what it looks and feels like because Mm -hmm. we didn't release the energy and the caught up emotions that are in our body. And also we're implicitly telling other people, I actually don't believe in letting out your emotions because I don't do it myself. Right. Right. So it's sort of explicit and implicitly um, compounding. And that's true. And uh, for both of us, me and you, one of our most important roles is as mothers. And this pandemic has taken a real toll on the children. And you know, you asked me at the very beginning, how did the adults in my life model grief for me? Yeah. And now we're, we're in that position. That's right. That's right. How are we modeling grief um, for our children and even just acknowledging and naming? You know, I often think about coming back to where you started, you know, you named grief over a loss that some people don't even name it. And so I think, I know I have been with my daughter, Lily, and I know you are, I've been trying to speak out loud and really name all the ways in which losses are happening, loss of school, loss of normalcy, loss Mm -hmm. of a sense of safety and all those things. But to name and sort of to define, I think is, is profoundly important because it gives us, if we can't name it, then we don't know how to respond or what to do with it. Exactly. And the, the, the the younger generation, um, even though they're not facing the threat of the loss of jobs or, they don't have to worry about being homeless or, you know, the, the kind of things that adults will be worrying about. For instance, my, my son, Mikey, played on three different soccer teams and that has all come to a stop. And that was a big identity. He, he, that, that was where he um, drew his identity from. He was this sporty kid who could go out and socialize and, and, and be with people and excel on the soccer field. And then he'd feel good about himself and he'd get exercise. And just having all of that stop... Um, people might think that's trivial, but I've been speaking to him about it and I've been saying, I understand that this is a huge loss for you and yeah, and I'm, I'm sorry that this is the way things are right now. And, and that expression is so profoundly important because it might give validation and meaning to sort of internal thoughts and feelings that that our children or those around us can't name or recognize or place. And we start to all think, you know, I, I talked early in the COVID pandemic, I did an interview with somebody and I thought I wanted to make sure people understood, like, I think people were feeling crazy for all these changes and that they were f- having all these feelings. And I think the importance again, like what you're modeling for Mikey, which is you can't fix it. You know, you can't get him on a soccer team right now. That's not the mm. point, but the point is to sort of name and sort of honor and give space for whatever, reactions and feelings he's having and to to honor that is again profound i think we like we like to be able to do something that looks actionable but just like you coming and sitting and holding me in that space after eric's death to just name for somebody yeah this is real loss that you're experiencing doesn't look like a big action but it's everything Mm -hmm. it's that empathy and you know something that we're not going to be able to answer right now, but I wonder how we're going to how we're going to process all of this grief as a society because right now we're still in survival mode. 
we're, we're still in the middle. I don't even think we're in the middle of it. Apparently, it's going to get so much worse. But how, as a nation, are we going to to collectively grieve all the people, all the changes, everything that's happening right now? It's got to be done, as you know. It has to be done. And how do we do it little by little when we're still in the midst of survival, fight or flight mode and set ourselves up so that when we quote unquote get to some place where that feels like a past event, mm-hmm. it's almost anticipatory grief. It's, I mean, it's ambiguous loss, of course, because we're losing things and unsure what will come back and won't. But it's also the kind of that work of anticipatory grief, right? It is definitely anticipatory grief. Um, and I also feel like it is quite traumatic, you know, trauma in the sense that you feel powerlessness, po- you feel powerless in yes. the face of, of this threat that is coming and you can't defend yourself and there's no one there to help you. That's, that's, um, I think that's some um, definition of, 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 of trauma. trauma that, um, I think it was Gabor Mate. I think that was his, his definition. When you, when you go by that definition, all of us are experiencing trauma right now. For instance, we're, I'm going to be going out later on this afternoon. Am I going to become infected? Um, and if I do, am I going to become sick? If, if I do, will I die? I don't know. I have no, I, I feel like I have very little control yeah. over, over my life right now with the threat of the pandemic. And so how are we going, we're being traumatized. Yeah. How are we going to process this trauma when this threat does eventually pass? And we hope that it does. Yes. And again, back to this sort of embodiment con- conception that we had Um, earlier, which is we hold trauma in our body and trauma treatment often is sort of, you know, through sort of the embodied physical release, Mm. including touch, you know, sort of the tender touch of someone who loves you. And so I do wonder the ways in which we can begin to figure out how to um, uh, move through and process some of our trauma as we are still being you know, it's, you cannot process trauma when you're still sort of in the home of the abuser, you know, That's to use right. that metaphor. And I think we are in that in COVID, but I'd also love to turn to, we're in that, in this space of national reckoning around um, the institutional and systemic policies and practices that are racism that make up the identity of our country. And so we're, we're not only living in the trauma of that system, but also the sort of uprising and the sort of reckoning with that is also critically important. And I think mm-hmm. spreading sort of a level of um, disruption to our knowingness and to our sort of sense of safety. And then that's more trauma. So we're sort of doubly in the midst of this space right now. When we come back, Shona and I begin exploring the relationship between grief and trauma, paying particular attention to the way this is coming up as we are embroiled in a national reckoning on race in the U.S. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my very special guest, Shona Teruza. I know I've mentioned this before, but it really bears repeating. 
Hosting this show is such an incredible honor. I really have to pinch myself each time I finish holding one of these conversations. I'm so touched that so many of you have tuned in and are joining me on this quest to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. Since you're here today, I have a quick favor to ask you. After the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating, and write a review. It will only take a few moments, but it will mean the world to me, and it will also make it easier for other folks who are grieving to find the show, too. And you know, you, you, you raise a good point, that, and, and something I'd like to add. All of these, these protests that we're seeing right now, and I've participated in, in five of them so far, um, where we go out and take to the streets and we're screaming at the top of our lungs with masks on. Let me just say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no complaint letters here with masks on, right? <laughs> yeah. I feel myself processing my grief yes. through that. It's that and embodied movement. Exactly. Action. Yeah. With a group of people who are also grieving, who yeah. are saying, stop killing us. Um, I can't breathe. Um, no justice, no peace. All the, the chants that we're doing. For me, that has been the clearest expression of mm. healthy processing of grief that we're doing as a nation right now. And I think that's why it's what, uh, I think it's 55 days in Portland, it, people, right. people in Portland are still protesting. There's, there's something to be learned from that. They're telling us something by the fact that they're still on the streets. And now I think I heard yesterday 4,000 people came out because we had the mums come out and form their wall and then we had the dads come out with their leaf blowers and hockey sticks to, to counteract the tear gas. And then after that, the veterans came and formed a wall in front of the fathers who were in front of the mothers who were in front of the protesters. That's grief work to me. It and is saying, a- absolutely grief work. Yeah. What they're saying is I stand with you. I may not be able to put my hands on you, but I'm going to put my body here in this space for you. This is my show of... Um, of support. This is me empathizing with you. I, I see what's happening. I grieve with you. I'm grieving. I'm also grieving for myself and for the reality of what this country really means. I'm grieving right. the loss of our identity as this exceptional country. Um, now that we see just how deep the systemic racism has infected all the structures of our, of our, of our country. The I feel deep- everyone grieving on the streets right now. I do. I think we are in a deep sense of grief. And I think people are coming at it from different lived experiences. But I do. So I'm not saying each grief is the same. But I do think that as we come to come to this reckoning, come to new aware, different people are coming to new awarenesses of the myth, um, you know, of an equal and just America, mm-hmm. there is a real deep grief that is also being expressed. And to your point, I think that is in part what's moving some people to sort of take the physical action of being in the street. Yeah. Led by African-Americans who've had to endure 400 years of grief. Right. And so exactly. I, w- when I see um, the people in, in Detroit and Chicago and the Black Lives Matter signs, I, I totally get it. I've only been in this country 15 years as a person of color, but some of the racism I've experienced, I really do not understand how people can go for generations and, and, and still keep going. But I, I see now and I understand. And so I'm out there on the street as well. Yeah. 
And and again, that grief is generational, passed through our biology, right? Mm-hmm. You know, passed through sort of the bodies and carried through because it has not been acknowledged and honored and expressed. Right. You know, something you just said, I mean, I'm curious to know the sort of differences in which I know you and I were talking um, the other day about some of the grief that you're experiencing as you start to cr- create space, make space for holding all of the racist racism that you has have suffered over the years and not made space for or not honored and and then it's kind of all coming up now and that's part of the grief work that you're doing and i can imagine there's lots of folks listening who are experiencing that do you want to share a little bit about um, that aspect of your grief right now and and so i told i mentioned at the beginning that my father was black african and my mother white british and uh they met in Scotland in the 1970s when people didn't do that kind of thing. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't as yeah. common as it is nowadays. And so I know, I know from what I've heard, what they've shared, what other people have shared, that it was extremely challenging from, for them. And from the moment, moment I was born, I was a controversy because I was born in a small town in Scotland. And I think I was probably the only brown kid in town. I had, I don't know for sure, but then my parents constantly having to move and try and find um, communities where they would be fully accepted because you know this world is generally very segregated everywhere everywhere yes and and so for them I I know there was a constant struggle I I felt I felt their struggle I I had struggles of my own trying to figure out where I fit in and just the constant um, racist comments and uh, just the experience of, of of being the outsider yeah constantly it's 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 all those um so we we were discussing about what Ibram Kendi calls it it's not the microaggressions he prefers to say describe it as the racial abuse all those incidents that that have been imprinted in my memory from all the years and they've had they've they've shaped me in some way all of a sudden all of that came rushing out like when um it started when I heard of Ahmed Arbery's murder, and yeah. then it was followed by Breonna Taylor, and then it was followed by George Floyd. It it tapped into that pain that I've been carrying all these years. Yeah. And so when I started hearing that people were taken to the streets, I had to be out there as well, just to process my own pain about the injustice of what my parents and my family have had to suffer because of racism in all sorts of different places. It's not just America. You know, they were in the UK and then trying to find their a home base in Zimbabwe where they could be accepted, a mixed race couple. And then me being in America, it just, it makes you, it, it, it's like a catalyst. I think it's been a catalyst, as a catalyst for a lot of people yeah. to say, well, it's enough now. We want change. We're going to demand change. We're going to put our bodies at risk, put ourselves at risk of being infected by COVID, this thing that we greatly fear. That's how, that's how much it's affected people that they're willing to put themselves out there in the middle of a global pandemic just to just to be able to 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 release all of that grief from lifetimes and and even generations and grief has to be acknowledged not always necessarily by others but we have to acknowledge our own grief back to that sort of creating space for yourself and and i know you and i were talking the other day that this this all of these incidents that you're talking about this year, which of course have been going on 
for 400 years, we're just now capturing it on camera and it's being televised more and more, is um, a catalyst for people to begin to turn inward and to then express outward these incidents compounding over and over again of grief, mm-hmm. grief of, of place, of acceptance, of identity, of, of everything. I mean, it's compounding. Yeah. Yeah. And um, a great book that you put me onto, I, I'm still in the early stages, um, My Grandmother's Hands, oh, Resna so Menekin, where he, he, he dives into the, the body trauma. And so that's something that I'm hoping to, to continue to work through over the next couple of weeks, just to have an understanding of what's, what's been going on with, with people, what's going on, what's been happening with me all of these years, what's happening right now. It's part of that whole meaning making that we have to constantly do. Absolutely. And that meaning making is important in, in re-scripting our lives and understanding where we are, where we've been and helps shape how, you know, where we're going. Yeah. That book has been transformational. In fact, I'm due to reread it because there's so much there to process. So I definitely recommend it all. Drop it um, in the show notes as well. And, you know, we, we have lots of, you know, what's, the way, if I was to talk about my hope for the future, because yeah. the topic yeah. we've been talking about is pretty dismal, isn't it? Mm. it? Is that we've come to a lot of realizations right now, and we have a lot of guides. Because already we've talked about, I've mentioned Ibram Kendi, and I've mentioned Resma Menachem, and there's so many others right now that um, it feels like they were just waiting for a time such as this because they published their books like, in the past couple of years. But exactly. all of a sudden, they've become so relevant now. Yeah. So we have guides, we have people who are going to help us to get through this, but we have to spread the word, which is why I'm so glad to be on your show, because we need to normalize grief. We need to point people to, to guides that will help us with the meaning making, yeah. processing, releasing of, of all this. Absolutely. And we need our guides. And part of having our guides means we're shifting the culture of opening up the fact that we need to talk about these things that we need to express these things. And um, I've been even thinking in my own um, work towards um, anti-racist practices in my day-to-day life, like this learning and reading is important. And just like grief, you still have to do it yourself. You have to do the work. You have to look internally and then respond externally in the world. And I think, um, you know, this messiness that we're experiencing at this sort of national reckoning is the same is akin to the same messiness that is the nature of grief and just owning that that is going to be a messy process and not letting the messiness deter us from taking that next step whatever that next step is exactly And one of the reasons why I think that we're, we're finally coming to terms with um, the, the, the true nature of, of, of America is because we're basically shut in our homes and we have the time for introspection. We have the time for individual introspection to see how am I complicit? How, how is my silence um, oppressive to, to other people? And we've got all this information that's going around and it's very hard to ignore it if you're on social media. And then we also have the, we're, we're collectively doing some introspection right now 
because we have such an extreme example of toxic leadership in the White House, we're now having to try and figure out what we really stand for. What are our real values as a nation? That's right. How can we change? How can we um, make this society more fair, really? And, and I think that's, that's one of the beauties of this time, in amongst all the trauma and the death and the grief, is that we're doing, I can feel us doing this work individually and collectively. This is the work of grief that you're talking about too. This is the, this is the, our, our manuscript has been shredded. And so now what? So as we can rebuild and rewrite the story of our country, of our culture, of our lives, of our family spaces, of our communities, that requires us to not rush back. We can never return to, to sort of where we were. So then mm. pausing and doing the work of really understanding what was the good and the bad, what is the harm and the beauty, and then how do I take that learning small baby steps and big giant leaps, um, you know, sort of locally and sort of globally. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's true. And I think, you know, something you and I talked about the other day um, is recognizing that even this is loss, that we are losing our identity as our eyes are becoming more wide open to who we thought we were sort of at a national level. And I'm not, again, I think we're all coming to different understanding, I think, you know, white people in this country are very late to the party in understanding even mm. our own sense of our identity as having a race mm. and and opening up to that this country isn't what it what the myth is and what the sort of words of the constitution and everything have said. So I'm not equating that everybody's waking up in the same way at the same time, but I do think we're all experiencing a sense of loss of our identity of ourselves and not necessarily in a bad way, but just a loss of um, our sense of ourselves, our race, our country, and that that loss is part of what we're seeing in terms of people's anxiety and stress and volatility. It's, it's not bad. It just is. And I think to name that is really important. Absolutely. And um, if we're talking about the five stages of grief, I know there's some compl- uh, controversy around <laughs> those. But if we were to talk about that model, I see a lot of denial as well. Yes. But at the same time, we, we know that you have to move through that. There's, there's people that are holding tight on tight to the past um, you see it in them trying to protect these statues and, and the, the old way of doing things. Um, you know, make America great again. Let's go back to, to, to the good old days. And to me, that's, that's denial because you, you, know, you know that that's, that's fading and you're trying to cling on as desperately as you can because you don't like to see that, that, you don't like to see that illusion disappearing. Exactly. And, and somehow we've got to help those people move through their denial. I don't know how, but. Yeah. yeah. I think we have to start sort of locally. And I mean that not necessarily like city politics, although sure, but I mean, sort of locally in our conversations and our, the people with whom we have influence, even the conversations you and I have, you know, weekly, mm. <laughs> you know, and with those around us, I think is, is the way we do that. Just like we're we're change, my mission is to sort of change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. And I think that is true on all the different expressions of grief, including the sort of shifting and the grief that we're talking about sort of at the national level in this country. Yeah. yeah one thing I really appreciate is um, the white people who are realizing that uh, whites created racism. Um, it's white people who are racist. 
Um, and we've got to do the work of cleaning this mess up and having those co- difficult conversations with Uncle Bob at Thanksgiving and, and trying to, to move him along and move uh, your neighbor along. And uh, it's, it's exhausting work, but that's, that's, that's the type of some of the work that has to be done. And I'm glad to see from what I've seen of my Facebook friends posting stuff that people are realizing that they, they can't stay silent anymore in the face of racist yeah. jokes or um, other systems that they, they're beginning to notice. Exactly, exactly. And, and to not, and to come to an understanding that this grief, that this work, that this shedding, that this silence is not, is important and actually benefits everybody in the long run as messy and painful and uncomfortable as it is. And that shedding process is going, is, um, I mean, I'm experiencing that through, through my death loss grief work that I've done and in the work that I do showing up for other people mm-hmm. is that, that pain, that pain, that discomfort, that ex- exploration opens doors to, um, <clears throat> wellness and joy and delight Mm. and connection in ways that you would never access if you didn't do that work right right you know I've been thinking something I want I'd love your reflection on this I don't know why you know I'm a total word nerd and narrative and narrative therapy and and language has always been really important to me and this morning I was back on google revisiting sort of what Google is telling the world grief is, sort of what are the nouns, the synonyms, and the antonyms. And something really struck me this morning. So grief in its sort of primary noun definition is deep sorrow, especially caused by death. And then the synonyms they had for it was sorrow, misery, anguish, pain, distress, agony, suffering, heartache. Hmm. And the antonyms they had for it were, of course, things like joy and delight and amazement. But the informal definition for grief right under deep sorrow, especially caused by death, is trouble, annoyance, Hmm. bother, irritation, harassment, as in don't give someone grief. And I thought, I don't know, I just had this light bulb, it's still turning on, so bear with me as it, you know, starts to make meaning for me. But I'd love your reflections, which is, that's exactly why we've kept our grief work or even our national reckoning reckoning work at bay because even the way we talk about the uncovering of that pain that loss we talk about it as if it's trouble annoyance a bother and irritation so just in our naming of it we relegate it to the space of not something to address or to do work by and, you know, I had a strong reaction when you started describing that because it's, it's very dualistic, the way it's been described. Exactly. exactly. And, you know, during my time as a hospital chaplain, very often I'd be with people whose relatives had been sick and who had been suffering for a very long time. And when they finally passed, for some of them, there was a sense of, for the relatives, there was a sense of relief that this pain that they were, the relatives were suffering from was now over and and the relative had had moved on to, if there were people of faith, a better, a better thing. And so there can be joy. There can be an experience of peace in the midst of deep grief. There can be feelings of hope while you're feeling despair. Yes, yes. Yeah. They're not mutually exclusive. Some of the conversation, part of the conversation we've had today, we've described how you know basically terrible things are right now, but the signs of hope and the signs of encouragement 
that we're noticing in the midst of it. And I think we have to move away from, like you said, binary mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah. Grief can be, be many things and it's a natural, it's a natural process. It's, it's a rite of passage. You can't move on to something newer, sometimes even better if you don't release, let go of what was before. So when I think of the word grief, I think of it as a releasing, mm. as, a, mm. as an acknowledging, as a... Honoring, yeah. 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 It's so much, you know, again, you know, and, and my listeners are probably maybe sick of hearing me say this, but I talk about it all the time. We, we live in this neat little package, five steps to 10 top tips, binary world um, with this illusion that if we can kind of wrap everything up, it will be more manageable and we'll have certainty. And I think what anybody who's experienced grief, whether we're talking about death loss, identity, or anything else knows is it's messy. It's and. Mm -hmm. And the minute we start, the moments that we let in and, the moments that we hold space and honor and show compassion to both relief and despair, let's say, you know, or joy and sorrow, I think is the moment that we come into our own and then we can show up for others because we can all understand and process the complexity. Mm-hmm. The, the non-complexity is just the illusion. Right. We yeah. need to get rid of those grief scripts. Yeah. This is yeah. what grief looks like. This is how you process your grief. Now, one day you may wake up feeling, you know, great. By the end of the day, you're feeling like crappy as hell. Exactly. <laughs> or moment day, to moment. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, and that's, that's, that's all perfectly fine. There's no shoulds. There's no rules as to how you grieve, what grief looks like. It's just rolling with it. Exactly. You know, something you said, you just said there really resonated for me. I was working with a, a client the other day in my one-on-one grief um, guide sessions, and she's a very instrumental griever. So somebody who really likes sort of intellect and action. And I said, you know, your first, you know, um, thing to do, you know, between this session and the next is without judgment, just grab a notebook or whatever tool you use and write down every time you hear the word should mm. in your head when it comes to your grief and your loss. Right. So what you just said there was we want to make it neat and we want to follow these scripts and these rules. But I think what we're coming to understand, I mean, metaphorically, you know, at, at a national level, but I think we can understand at the personal level, which is these scripts often are misguided. They came, they may have served a system or a belief um, for somebody somewhere in the past, but I think we really have to sort of open up and start to understand is, are these scripts that are in our heads that feel quote unquote true serving us any longer? And you can't sort of rewrite a new narrative or come to a new understanding or release, as you said, in the grief work until you start to acknowledge what's there. Exactly. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're helping us to reimagine grief. Isn't that yeah. perfect? <laughs> well, thank you. You're now my new spokesman for reimagining grief. <laughs> thank you, Shona. Is there anything else as we close out today's conversation? And I do, I do think I would love to invite you back towards the end of season two of Grief as a Sneaky Bitch so that we can sort of reflect um, on the ways in which this compounding grief, this space for grief 
the evolution of our grieving of identity and reshaping of our national understanding is happening. So I'd love to, you know, this is just a pause um, until another conversation, but today, is there any um, reflections as you sort of close out after sharing sort of some of your own personal um, experiences navigating grief, your professional experiences in the ministry navigating grief, and then sort of this, you know, national collective grief that we're experiencing? Any sort of wishes for people or rem- reminders? I would just say that, um, you know, with with every um, goodbye, there's usually a, a new beginning. Yeah. And grief is not to be feared. Um, I think the more that we can embrace our grief in, in what, however that presents itself, the more opportunities there are for new beginnings, new possibilities. Like your whole, um, your work came from your experience of losing Eric. Um, my work came from my experience of losing my parents. And so grief can bring opportunities if we embrace it and, and sit and listen to the lessons that it could bring us. And so it's, I think it's not to, be, not to be feared, it's to be honored and welcomed and um, I think listened to. So that's what I'd share. Listen to your grief. I could not have said that any better myself and that's why we are deep soul sister friends. That's <laughs> right. That's, that's we, right. That's where our friendship has um, grown and um, thrived over time. And I just so appreciate your wisdom, your generosity, your uh, willingness to sort of reflect out loud um, about your experiences. And I know that our listeners today have are walking away feeling seen and heard and maybe thinking in a new way about how they welcome in their grief, as you said. Well, it's been an absolute honor to, to be a part of this. Let's do this again sometime. We will definitely do this again sometime. Thank you so much today, Shona. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lisa. Wow, y'all. Shona's wisdom and insightfulness is such a gift in my life. And I'm so glad I was able to share this gift with you today. Our conversation was such an important reminder of the expansiveness of grief, including in the context of cultural upheavals and immigration, and it reinforced the importance of recognizing the embodied toll grief takes in all of our lives. She has and continues to transform all the losses she's faced and continues to face in her life into her role as a mother of her three children, as an American citizen, as a racial justice advocate, and to her work as the Minister of Outreach, Social Justice, and Diversity at her church. She and I have been book swapping for a decade and a half now, constantly learning and sharing with one another, so I am not at all surprised we ended up talking about books in today's show. You can find the link to the two books we mentioned earlier, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and My Grandmother's Hand by Resma Menekum in the show notes for today's episode. I want to thank Gal Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for today's show. Thank you for listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.